Romans 13. And uh, we're in this passage for, uh, this is two of three weeks, considering this group of verses beginning in verse 8 through to the end of the chapter. Let's read it together, beginning there. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For, or because, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night, verse 12, is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we come before you as beggars, asking, pleading for something uh, that we do not possess on our own. Primarily, Lord, that something is a desire to obey your word. This we do not have. We We are not endowed as sinners with a desire to repent nor as fleshy humans do we have a desire to obey the will of our heavenly father and master but as you promised through the prophet Ezekiel I will remove your heart of flesh or of of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll remove the old and I'll give you a new. And the new heart that you give to us comes with a new will, new desires, new ambitions. And so we ask that you would first put that in us which is not there. And that is a deep, deep desire to obey your word. And then, Lord, we ask that you would activate that which you have put in us. That you would spark it. That you would fan it into a bursting flame. Such that our greatest ambitions above all else would be to obey our master who is in heaven, who rescued us from sin and muck and mire and evil and slavery, who gave all to free us. 
Lord, we come before you this morning as beggars. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Boy, that, those words come uh, to mind when the alarm goes off in the morning, don't they? I don't know what your alarm clock sounds like. I know what my dad's sounded like when I was a kid. And it was that 1982 model, you know what I mean, that every dad had, I think. The red glowing lights, and you could hear this thing in the entire county. It was like this. Let me just... Right? Does anybody, anybody know that sound? Yeah. I know that sound. It would wake me from my sleep when it was time for my dad to get up and go to work every day. My alarm clock, as a more distinguished, you know, 21st century, you know, it's more pleasant. It's a little song, and it starts very soft. Maybe you have yours like this. It goes like this. And then it just slowly gets louder and louder. And then about that time, I realize, oh, that's my alarm. I don't want to let it wake up my wife. Quick, turn it off, right? It's time to wake from your sleep. Now, of course, we think of this every morning when our alarm clock goes off, whether by a pleasant sound or by an ear-piercing call from a dying bird. (laughs) But, of course, Paul is not speaking of our earthly sleep, is he? Not human sleep that we, we take part in every night. No, he's talking about spiritual slumber. It's time for you to wake from your sleep. And then he gives us a reason for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now that's true for some of you more so than for others, right? Like you're on the other side of 70, you know, and you're thinking salvation is nearer to me than when I first believed. Verse 12, he continues in this tenor that seems a sharp shift from the verses just prior. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's for this reason that I titled this, the second week of this series, The Law of Love. I've called this the urgency of love. Because I can read those few verses in this section with no other sense coming over me than urgency. There's a fervor about what Paul is saying, isn't it? Isn't there? The time, the hour, wake up, salvation is near, the night is gone, the day is at hand. It's the language of of a soldier who the night before had stayed up late with his comrades. It was potentially their last night together Why? Because tomorrow they would march to the battlefield. And so they might have stayed up late, engaging in a few beverages, perhaps a contest to see who could have the most and still stay upright. 
They perhaps engaged in various types of physical promiscuity the night before the battle. This is history, not, uh, not, it's not a guess. And then the next morning, after a night of partying and revelry and indulgence, the commander would come through and sound the alarm. It's time to wake the day of battle is at hand. It's time to shake off your, uh, the drinks from the night before. It's time to focus on the task and not your own pleasure. It's time to wake up, soldier. Paul often uses that type of imagery when speaking of the Christian and his activity in the world. We are soldiers, or at least we are to take on the armament of a soldier, breastplate, belt, sword, shield, helmet, right? And all of this is couched not about a pending battle that you're going to face tomorrow at work, All of this talk about preparation and waking from slumber and making yourself ready for action and for battle is is not about the the battle that you are going to face tomorrow against your own sinfulness or sinful inclinations or the struggles that you're going to face when you go to work and you deal with the same coworker or the same temptation or the same challenging environment. You pick your poison. It has nothing to do with that. So as soon as we start reading ourselves into the text and we think, yeah, I've got to get ready for the battle, I've got to fight my... No, 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 no. The day that's at hand is the day of the Lord. The reckoning of mankind is at hand. Somehow Paul equates loving your, your neighbor with an urgency to the pending second coming of Jesus Christ. It'll be our job today to figure out how those two things connect in the mind of Paul as inspired by the Spirit. Are you with me? Jesus and the apostles have much to say concerning the last days, the final hours. The second coming of Jesus, the permanent union of Christ and his church, and the judgment of the unrepentant Satan and all of his evil minions is an absolute certainty, all of it. It It's not a question of various different types of interpretation of eschatology, which is the study of the end times. It's not a difference of of opinion about what's going to happen next or what the, the millennium is or what the new heavens and the new earth is. All of those things can be discussed. They can be, there can be differences of opinion among Christians who are united. But the second coming of Christ, the union of Christ to his church permanently and perfectly, and the judgment of the wicked and Satan and his minions, these things are an absolute certainty. They are coming. They are pending, if you will. The second coming of Christ and the, the end of this era, the era of the church that began 
In Acts chapter 2, with the initiation of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles and 3,000 souls being saved in a day, the Spirit, who Jesus said of truth, who would be with you and in you, that, that's a new dawn. That's a new age that begun. It's not permanent, though. This age of grace, as it is often called, is not forever. The eternal state, which comes after the judgment, that is forever. Jesus spoke of his second coming thoroughly and often. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Hold on. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Right? Not if. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, I'm in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, if you want to look on. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You get that? The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world? You mean it's already ready? As, as much as the second coming of Christ is a pending absolute certainty, so too is the kingdom that is prepared That's a wonderful promise. Verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then look at this. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do this? The righteous will say, We didn't do anything. You did everything. You attribute to us good works? When did we do anything worthy of eternal significance? That's what the righteous say. The righteous say, I'm nothing. The righteous say, I am dust. The redeemed of the Lord say, I am no one if I'm not saved by grace. I have accomplished nothing. I have done nothing. My words are meaningless. My actions are worthless. You see, friend, the righteous say, I'm nothing. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And he said, and and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I had a church member tell me just this week how blessed they were, how when they were sick, how many people called, checked on them, brought them food, offered to bring them food. because that's what we're supposed to be about. When you do it for the least of these, you do it for me, Jesus said. But then he will turn, Jesus says, the king will turn to those on his left and say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Listen, the eternal fire not prepared for humans, for it is God's will that all men should be saved. He prepared a kingdom for his creation He prepared eternal fire for Satan and his minions. 
However, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we do this? The unrepentant and the unredeemed say, when did I sin? Where did I sin? The fool says, what have I done? The forgiven says, my sins are many. When did I do anything good? The fool, the deceived, the unredeemed says, where's my sin? What is my sin? When did we do this? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, if that were the only thing Jesus said in his entire life, as it is recorded for us 2,000 years later about his second coming and the judgment of the impenitent, that's the unrepentant, if that was all he said about the matter, one description, that would be enough. It should be enough to strike holy fear in our hearts to confess and repent and be renewed by the love of Jesus. But that's not the only thing he said. He said more, not only about the certainty of his return, but how his followers ought to live in light of this fact, Luke 21, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Dissipation is just casual, you know, drinking. Like, um, uh, like it's, it's not so much about alcohol as much as it is about being casual, being lackadaisical. Life's a party. Life's a joke. I've noticed that those who take a very sort of jovial take on life in general often find themselves taking a jovial take on sin and wickedness. Oftentimes unintentionally. Such was the demeanor of your pastor for a large portion of his young adult life. Lighthearted about life equally lighthearted about sin. It says, watch yourself. Lest your hearts be weighed down with that type of casualness leading to drunkenness. Or be weighed down by the cares of this life. So there's the two extremes a lack of sobriety about life, or an overemphasis on the simple perishing cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. What day? The day of his return. For it will come on all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake, Jesus says, at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
Stay awake. Wake up. It's a regular metaphor used in the New Testament, not only by Jesus, but by the apostles as well. Stay awake. Wake up. It's ironic because um, to be woke in its earliest of of adaptations in its impossibly grammatical, nonsensical fashion, to be woke is to be considered among those in society who are awake to what's really going on. Now understand that, friends. That is the foundation, the bedrock of wokeness as it is pervasive now globally, as a, as a cultural institution invading politics and school boards and homes and churches, quote-unquote churches, awake and alert to what's really going on. Only instead of being aware, the woke are only filled with deeper deception than where they began. Paul says it, wake from your sleep, spiritually. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. 1 Thessalonians 5. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I love this now. He does again the day and night comparison, light and dark. Since we belong to the day. That's a great phrase. Since we belong to the day. My mom used to say to me when I was young, nothing good happens once the sun goes down. Why do I got to be home so early? Nothing good happens once it gets dark outside. It's not bad advice. Mom, dad, you can have that. My mom just gave you permission, trademark, you know, signed, right? Nothing good happens once the sun goes down. And it's interesting when you look back on um, the, the news coverage and the footage, even of the, the, the riots that plagued our major cities in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Truly, during the day, most of the demonstrations, in many cases, were quite, they were angry, they were upset, um, either justifiably or simply because of fanning the flame, as the media tends to do. Um, But it was when it turned night that it began to get violent and destructive, in most cases. Why? Because nothing really good happens once the sun goes down. Interestingly, then, that Paul calls us children of the day. We belong to the day. You belong to the day, the light. John, when describing Jesus, right, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Right? He was the, the light and the light of the light and the life of men. Right? He is the light. We belong to the day, First Thessalonians 5. So let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In Titus, Paul associates anticipating Christ's return with godly living. Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Look at this. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Hooray. Doing what? Training us to renounce ungodliness. Waiting for our blessed hope. You see that? James 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This is good for those of you who struggle with patience. You only have to be patient with your spouse, with your chickens, with your children, with your son-in-law, Sandy, sorry. You only have to be patient until the Lord comes back. (laughs) Problem solved, right? No, what's he saying? He's saying the exercise of Christian ethic has if you will, lurking in the backdrop, a continual motivation that is the coming of the Lord. This is not it. This will not go on forever. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. As you wait for Christ's return, he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Now look, all of a sudden, the coming of the Lord is at hand and he says, so stop arguing with each other. What's going on here? Perspective, right? Perspective. The coming of the Lord is at hand, so don't grumble with each other so that you may not be judged. Why would you be judged? Well, because the one who works dissension among the body of Christ is not among the body of Christ. He's an enemy of the body of Christ. Beware. The judge is standing at the door. Second Peter 3. Are you tired of this yet? You tired of reading the Bible yet? All these inferences about the second coming of Christ? All right, good. Three people are not tired of it. Second Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What all things? Every, everything. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. That's reminiscent of Revelation, isn't it? And the heavenly bodies will melt away. That's the stars in the sky. As it says in Revelation, there, there is no place for them. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. My son, Pate, loves, um, I want to say it right, because I get these words mixed up all the time, astronomy. Not astrology, not the mystical, mythical, nonsensical, religious stuff. No, astronomy. Yeah, good. Okay. Uh, Have you guys seen some of the images from the new James Webb telescope? It's remarkable, isn't it? And they're discovering like black holes and galaxies inside black holes, stuff that they could have never seen before with the previous technology, the, the Hubble, I believe it was. They're discovering marvelous things. And my son is watching documentaries and he's reading and he's looking at the pictures and I look at the pictures and I'm going, wow, this is amazing. It's almost incomprehensible to think that the best of even that is yet to come. 
right? Verse 13, 2 Peter 3. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since, look, since you are waiting for these, look at the assumed position of the church by Peter. Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. One could argue the apostles instruct us to live in such a way that the moment we are called home, either by death or by Jesus' return, we will be found with a clear conscience. Now, that's the implication, isn't it? Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish at peace. Sure, that means first and foremost covered by the blood of Jesus, yes. But Peter's talking to the church. And he's talking about living lives of holiness and godliness. Be found, be, if you will, if you, if you accept a, an actual rapture of the church, which I do, you don't have to agree, that's okay. Be found being caught up with a clear conscience, having lived uprightly and confessed your sin regularly, not saying, where have I sinned, but saying, oh, great is my sin, where have I done good? Let us be found in that state. 1 John 2, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Do you want to shrink from him at shame in his coming? Or do you want to be called home with a clear conscience? Verse John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. The best is yet to come. Joel Osteen can have his best life now. What will be has not yet appeared. I'm looking forward to that. This is all going to melt away. It's going to burn. Store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. That's the exercise of the new will that God put in you, a new heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone to do what you do not want to do in and of yourself, which is to obey him and live holy and godly lives before God and man with a clear conscience in a perpetual and constant state of confession and repentance. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. All of which, all of it is couched with the backdrop of his second coming. John MacArthur says, an awareness of the second coming of Christ is the key to holy living. This is God's will for your life, friends. Be holy. Too many Christians are caught up, myself included, when I was 18, when I was 16, when I was 21, whatever. 
way too caught up in what's God's will for my life and how do I know if this is God's will and how do I know if this girl is the right girl or if this guy is the right guy or if this school is the right school or if this job is the right job or if this hobby is the right hobby. How can I know the will of God? I don't mean to be uh, demeaning because I was in that seat with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. I, let's you know what let's go ahead and turn to that one just so that we're all a hundred percent on the same page first Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 shall we read it together everybody ready in the ESV, for this is the will of God. What? Congratulations, 16, 18, 21-year-old. I just solved the puzzle for you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. As such, friends, it is time to wake up. The biblical authors often use sleep and slumber to characterize the activity of the lazy, the drunkard, the unaware, the lousy and evil servant. Proverbs 6, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? It's a great word. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 18, 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys Paul instructing Timothy concerning widows in the church. He wants them to be busy about God's business, serving and praying, or else they fall into idleness. He says, if not, they learn to be idlers, 1 Timothy 5, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Paul reaches in, if you will, to the, the church at Ephesus, writing to Timothy, who is the, if you will, the teaching pastor at the church in, in Ephesus, and he reaches through Timothy's words, and he, and he grabs the widows by the collar and says, says, woman, dear daughter of the king, wake up. Stop this nonsense. Petty trifling and busyness and gossip. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. The life of the believer then ought to be lived in a constant state of preparation. Who, who else bought um, emergency foodstuffs and generators and things like that when like the whole world went nuts a couple years ago? Just me? Okay, there we go. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, yeah. If you're super duper into like, um, uh, like uh, dehydrated foods, I'd love to have you over for dinner sometime. <laughs> in fact, anytime in the next 25 years. <laughs> Preparation, right? That's the point. The believer ought to be living in a constant state of preparation for the eternal age to come. Jesus is coming back, Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking earthly. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the, the times or the seasons. It's not for you to know 
The Father has fixed them by his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and your perspective will change. You're still thinking like knuckleheads right now, but when the Spirit dwells in you and with you, you will, you will learn and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. That's the city, the county, the, the, those with whom you have disagreement and the whole earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were still gazing up into heaven, if you will, trying to catch snow with their tongues, right, uh, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go up. Jesus is coming back. Now, all of that by way of introduction. (laughs) The good news is I don't have to study this week. I've got the whole sermon that we didn't get to preach. Perhaps it's for our good. In this series, and in this context, what in the world does the second coming of Christ have to do with fulfilling the law of love? The love of God in us working its way out through us creates in us a sense of urgency. I'm going to say that again because this is the last line of the sermon because we're done. I can't even try. The love of God in us working its way out through us creates in us a sense of urgency. The love of God in us, that which we do not possess, that he put in us when Ezekiel, he put a new heart of flesh in us. He put love for him and for fellow man into your bones, into your guts. Love that you do not possess on your own. As it is working its way out through us as we apply the litany of scriptures that we read about living holy and godly lives, not grumbling, not complaining, not gossiping, not being busybodies, putting off the the deeds of drunkenness and licentiousness and sexual immorality. It's working its way out through us. And as it is, as the love of God is being exercised by us, It creates in us a sense of urgency. A sense that um, this is not my home. This is not the end. This is not all that there will be. Because Jesus is coming back. It is not a theory, it's not a matter of opinion. It is an absolute certainty. If, if you knew that that day was next Sunday, that would change your week, wouldn't it? 
Paul says, so go live like that. Let's pray.